Today's reading is Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It's me again. Um, one of the things that I would like to do over the next while is just, if you, want to, if you feel like, man, I'd like to be involved in worship, just come have a chat with me and we can figure that out and maybe have an evening of getting together and jamming and playing and, because it would be great to expand that. Um, this is a, a very high level of commitment community in terms of what people are involved in and the working through all the different lists is pretty tricky, but we get in there. Thank you for serving so beautifully. Um, it is a wonderful thing. All right, so we're doing a series on Christ, the Eternal Son. I, was, I, I apologize for missing last week. I was at another church, and we were doing some elder training, and it just went on and on and on, and that's where it went. So um, I apologize for not being here, but I heard it was outstanding. I have not listened to the talk yet. I will do that. The Trinity. Jesus pre-existent, Jesus existing, three in one, one in three, that great mystery um, that confounds us and yet actually anchors us into a beautiful understanding of what the gospel is, what gospel community is meant to be, uh, what relationship in the kingdom is supposed to be like, is all anchored in an understanding of this beautiful community called the Trinity. where They're serving one another. There's an overflow of continual grace toward one another, each understanding what they meant to do, be ready to be sent and received. It's such a beautiful picture as you unpack it. And um, I think for many of us, it's, it became something that we, if you were raised in church, it was something that was part of your doctrine that you could quote, but it never really actually applied to sometimes the way that we lived. And the Great Commission, um, <clears throat> when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, uh, there is already this picture of an authority being given to him by his father. There's this beautiful relationship. And, and he says, I want you to go into all the world. As you go, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I love the Dallas Willard says about that text. Is, We've so reduced it to dunking people in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And rightly so. We're not taking that away. But actually, it's a bigger picture. It's a, a picture of baptizing people into a triune culture. That actually we are baptized into a life that's rooted in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And how those relationships interplay gives us direction of how we are meant to live as believers. So if you weren't here for last Sunday, listen to the talk. I know that um, Brian recommended a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. 
It's absolutely outstanding. Easy book to read. I encourage you to get it. Is that right? So today we're on uh, part three of our series. The first one is Introducing Christ. Last week, the Trinity. This week, we're going to talk about, a little bit about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Um, and you might say, why do we want to do that? And at the end, hopefully, we would have answered that question. But there are two ways to look at the Old Testament as it applies to as we study the person of Jesus. The one is, to, as Christians, to read backwards. So as Christians, we have the gospel, we have the New Testament, we are saved. So when we read the text backwards, we can see all these images, all these pointers to Jesus, all these illustrations, these prophetic words, these pictures that spoke about Jesus. We see them clearly this side of Jesus' incarnation, which Brian will talk about next week. But when the Jews were there, they didn't have that. So that's another way to read it from a Jewish point of view is to say we're saturated in this text and we are looking forward with anticipation and expectation to a Messiah who's coming. We're looking backwards to see how the Messiah was promised when he's already arrived for us. Does that make sense? When I was at Fuller um, many, many years ago, I did half my master's. I was in John Goldengay's class, a wonderful class on the prophets. And he's an, he was an amazing person. But him and I argued continually because I said, I am a believer. I can't separate myself from being a believer and looking backwards. And he forever tried to tell me, think like a Jew. I said, I can't. I appreciate now what he was trying to do and what he was trying to say. Um, and I think for us it's important because, and we'll look at some texts as we go along. It's easy for us to write off a whole lot of things and say, yeah, we just now reading backwards, we've got hindsight, we see that we're making this Jesus fit into that text. And people have said that. But for a Jewish person, they lived with this high level expectation that Messiah was coming. They lived with this great anticipation that God had spoken to his people. He had spoken to the prophets. It had come through in their songs and their psalms and in the way that they interacted and in the tabernacle, all these things. There was this promise that God was going to send Messiah, the anointed one, the one that would come and heal the nations, the one that would come and restore things as they were meant to be, the one that would put the Jews in their right place and drive out all their enemies. They lived with that anticipation. And if we understand that and we look forward, we get a beautiful understanding about Jesus. And I'm going to say this and I'll say it then. What I'm hoping that you get is for us to see that Jesus is not just an arbitrary figure in history. He's actually the pinnacle. He's the point of history. So um, we'll look at it. Another just a precursor is understanding this, that in Jewish culture, as was in many ancient cultures, a word spoken to a person or to a family often went, went down the family line, down the generations, and was fulfilled later. Does that make sense? So a prophetic word often spoken. I give a prophetic word to Tyler and Heidi. And it might be some immediate outworking now, but some of it might be for their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren as they go down. This word follows them. And in ancient culture, that was very common. So when the prophets prophesied and people spoke about these great promises of God, they had some expectation now and they also had expectation of down the road. And we'll come to this one, but an example is Abraham 
God speaks to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, but I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Well, Abraham never saw that in his lifetime. So it was a word for his line for down the road. Does it make sense? So keep that in mind as we speak about these things. So at the beginning of the Gospels, there's this fellow, he's known as the cousin of Jesus, and he's, what's his name? John the Baptist. And he comes on the scene, and he starts, he goes into, into the river, and he starts calling people to repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand, and he's quite a wild fellow, and people are rushing in and repenting of their sins and being baptized by him in the river, and the, the religious leaders are coming there, and they ask, and everyone begins to ask this question, are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? Are you the one that we should be expecting? Do you remember that? And he says, no. Why were they asking him that question? Why weren't they asking other people that question? Why were they asking John that question? The answer is, John began to do things that looked like Messiah actions. He was calling people to repentance. He was calling people to turn from their wicked ways. He was calling people to die to themselves in the waters of baptism and be raised up again and go live lives uh, and uh, produce fruit in keeping with that repentance. He was challenging the religious leaders who were putting heavy burdens upon the people. And he was saying, no, no, you vipers, you, the, you horrible people. They, are you the Christ? There's something here. This is a powerful gum and locusts out his mouth and honey stuck in his hair and wild rawr, type of God. That's what it says about him. You should write a story, Liam, about John the Baptist. Huh? Are you the one? The reason they asked that question, they were anticipating. There was something they were expecting. And John... And I won't read the verses because if you've read some of the Gospels, you've understood this. John says, no, I am one calling in the wilderness. One that's come to prepare the way for the Lord. Do you remember that? Now that is taken from an Old Testament promise in Isaiah 40, verse 3 to 5, and in Malachi chapter 3. There's this prophetic language that comes that God would send a forerunner. To prepare the way for the Lord. One calling from the wilderness. John identifies himself with that and says, there's one coming after me. I baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm not even fit to tie the sandals on his feet. So already we're starting to see this picture. People are starting to have this anticipation that a Messiah is coming because John was doing something. And you start to see these connections. Then one day, while John is in the water, and he's, you know, he's down to his waist, and he's got people in, and he's, he's doing that stuff, this fellow appears on the bank. And John looks at him, recognizes him. Now, we have to understand this, that they're cousins, or at least they were second cousins. They, who knows, maybe they hung out together. They were about six, seven months apart in age. They must have hung out somewhere along the line. I don't know. Um, maybe they had yo-yos in that day, and they well, whatever. But John looks and sees him, and there's a revelation. He says, "Behold, the Lamb of God." Yeah, that's kind of well, from where we sit. 
We say, yeah, that's right. He's the Lamb of God. He died on the cross. Da, da, da. But from where the Jews were, because these were all Jews coming to the river to be baptized, the religious leaders, they didn't have the cross in mind. They had a guy coming, political power. And suddenly this Old Testament, the last of the Old Testament prophets declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why was he saying that? See, John was referring back to Isaiah 53, and he was about talking about the lamb that is slaughtered. You go read Isaiah 53, is that one, and we'll, maybe we'll read that just now, that beautiful text that we see is clearly these prophetic images and words about Jesus. He refers back to that, and he says, here's the one, the lamb of God, the lamb that was slaughtered. If you go read Acts chapter 8, there's a beautiful story of uh, is a, uh, Philip with the eunuch. The eunuch's reading that text, that very text from Isaiah 53. He's reading it, and he doesn't understand what it means. When Philip arrives, you know, there he's at the, way, uh, at the chariot, start, and it goes on, it says, and he told him about Jesus. So suddenly you've got these connections between some of the lamb that was slaughtered in Isaiah 53. John saying, behold, the lamb of God. This guy saying, this is all about Jesus. These connections. Does that make sense? It's really important for us to see these things. Um, then we come to the text that Becca read, the Matthew 16, which is one of those beautiful texts. Um, it's a gorgeous text. Who do you say I am? Because they're also living with this expectation. They've given up their lives. They've left their, 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 the boats and they've left the tax place and they've lived, been a zealot and they've done all these things and they're following this rabbi Jesus and they're getting inklings. They're seeing things. They're seeing healings and they're seeing miracles and they're seeing deliverance and they're seeing a man calling people to repentance. They're seeing all of this and he gets into this place. He's not prepare them for his death. He says, who do you say I am? What do the people say? Well, people say you're one of the prophets. He says, but who are you? Who do you say? And Peter says what? You are the Christ. What's he saying? You are Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one that we have been expecting for thousands of years. On, on you is the fulfillment of all the prophecy, all the words, all the images, all of this is now in you. You are the Christ. And Jesus kind of, yeah. You got it. Just don't tell anybody yet. But that's it. Yes, you got it. It's actually on that revelation that I am the Christ, that I can build a church. A church that's built on just vain tradition is not the church. A church is built upon the reality that Jesus is Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one who came to do everything that had been promised. And so for us who are Christians who are not Jews, it's still important for us to understand all of that because he came as savior of the world. He came to redeem the world. And we'll look at some of those things in a moment now. Is this making sense? In John chapter 5, I'm going to turn there quickly and I'll read it. You, I, don't think we, I, I didn't give it to Mike. There were just too many little scriptures, so I didn't give it to him. Sorry, Mike. Verse 39. Uh, my glasses are getting really bad, sorry. Jesus speaking to the religious leaders. He says this. Next, remember, who's he talking to? Jews. 
It's important. He's talking to Jews, not talking to us Western Americans. He's talking to Jews. He said, you search the scriptures. What were the scriptures to the Jews? 39 books of the Old Testament. We know is the Old Testament. They were broken up slightly different, but that's what they had. Those were their scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So out of the mouth of Jesus saying, the Old Testament bears witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Life is not found in the scriptures. Life is found in Jesus The scriptures point to Jesus, tell us about Jesus, show us how to live. But life is found only in Jesus. And he's saying, you search the scriptures, you're looking for the stuff, but you don't recognize me when I come. My paraphrase. Jesus, again, in Luke 24, uh, let's turn there. the, The resurrection has happened and the two fellows are on the road to Emmaus and they're kind of moaning and weeping and they're bemoaning their lot because Jesus is gone and they thought he was Messiah and now they're upset. Do you remember that story? Look at verse 25. Uh, and he said to them, so he just appears next to them, starts walking. He says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, are all the things we need to understand who Jesus was, why he came, what he came to do, how he came to do it. It's there. Does it make sense? So now let's look at a few of those, if that's all right. So in the Old Testament, there, there are about 500 sort of references to Jesus in some form or other, obscure ones, more clear ones, but there are about 500 images that you could look back and say, hmm. But there are at least 60 very clear pointers towards Messiah. 60 clear pointers that the Jewish scholars recognized, not us. We recognize them now looking backwards. They recognized them from where they were looking forward, and they still recognize them as the promise of Messiah because they don't believe Messiah has come yet. So they still live with an anticipation and an expectation of Messiah who is to come. They recognize these. This is about Messiah. So it's not us sort of guessing. Oh, that looks good. That, that ties in with Jesus. Let's see if that puzzled me. No. These, are, these have been around for thousands and thousands of years now as a recognition of something. Um, and then within that, and we're not going to really do this part today just because there's so much. You know, there are theophanies or Christophanies where we, we get sort of images where m- maybe Jesus actually appeared in human form temporarily to speak to people. Where it says the Lord appeared to them and spoke with them and walked with them. And often those, they can either be angels, and sometimes they, they end up worshiping, this is the Lord. There's a sense of this could be God in flesh temporarily to come and encourage or say a word or do something, as was the Holy Spirit would come from time to time upon a person, fill them with power for a job, but not permanent until Pentecost. Does that make sense? Now, I don't necessarily want to go into that side of it, not because it's not interesting or unimportant, just because of the time we have. All right. So let's start with a few things and we'll be done. Genesis 3, 15. 
We've had the fall. We had creation. It's beautiful. Then we have the fall. Humanity just does not listen to God, does their own thing. They doubt this word that God said. That God said, if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. Satan comes and says, did God really say? And I hazard a guess that's for many of you in your life as you follow Jesus and you struggle. People are struggling to follow Jesus in this, the 21st century. I doubt that one, uh, one of the things that most probably creeps in in the middle of the night when you're thinking is this little word, did God really say? Is this really what it's all about? You know, I think that's a pretty common one. But in, in Genesis 3.15, and I won't look at all the text. If you're making notes, you can look it up. Where it says, when God passes judgment, sort of this beginning of judgment upon the snake, and he says, there's one coming, and there will be a seed from the woman that will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. Have you read that? If you're following the Bible reading, there's this promise to humanity. And that's where I want to start. There's this promise to humanity that one is coming, a seed of woman who will actually deal with the kingdom of darkness. Is that right? Does that make sense? Can I, do I unpack that or can I leave it there for the moment? There's one coming of humanity, of woman, that will come and deal with the kingdom of darkness. We see it now. Jewish scholars have recognized it for millennia. All right. Jump across to Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. These are words that come to this man, Abraham, who was a moon worshiper of the Chaldeans. Here's a word from God. Who knows how he responded, but it was acknowledged as faith. He believed God. Grace comes to him. He begins a journey with his with his nephew Lot, and they go on a journey, and they end up in a place, and God says, I'm calling you, and I'm going to read that text because it's so powerful. Actually, it's the beginning of the gospel. Galatians tells us that. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The first, the Abrahamic promise. Now, if we go later and we read into Galatians and in Hebrews, we find that they talk about the seed that is Jesus. But we're not there yet because we don't have that part of the book. We're in the Old Testament. We are living with the expectation. So Jews understood that in this person, Abraham... Coming down from humanity, now dropping to a very specific family line. Through this family line, God is going to bless the nations. He's going to bring healing back to the nations because the nations are in up, upheaval. There's sin, there's sickness, there's war, there's damage. And God speaks and says, now I'm going to begin a program of restoration to bring everything back to the way that it should be. And I'm Abraham, I'm going to use you. And we know that he makes, you know, he gets impatient and we end up with Ishmael. But actually, as we jump ahead into the rest, into Genesis 15, Genesis 17, we see these covenants being formed, these promises being enhanced. And he says, through your son Isaac, the son of promise, he who laughs, that I will allow this promise to go down through your line. All nations will be blessed. You'll be known as the father of many nations. So suddenly we've gone from human to one family, one clan. 
Is that, is, am I doing it too quick or is that all right? All right. Now, if we jump to Genesis 49, so lots happened. Here comes Isaac, and he's an, he's an interesting fellow, and he's fighting with his brother. And then he has kids, and they fight with one another, and the one's called the deceiver, but yet the line still goes down him. And he has a whole bunch of kids, and da da da. And then they end up, you know, getting caught up in Egypt because of famines, and Joseph, and then um, Jacob goes down with his, with his sons to Egypt, and then he pro- prophesies this. Over his kids, at the end of his life, he prophesies over each one of them. And in the culture, ancient culture, Jewish culture, uh, Babylonian culture, Chaldean culture, any of those ancient cultures, when a father was dying or those last days, he would pronounce blessings etc., upon his children. He would give the inheritance. And when he spoke a word, that word was binding. Today we have documents this thick with signing. And they challenge. In those days, a word was binding. And he says this in uh, verse 8. Judah, now he's getting to all the brothers, he comes to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares not rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, if you jump to the New Testament, we understand that they knew that Messiah was coming from the line of Judah. Do we not know that? This goes back to here. So we've gone from Genesis 3, where it was this pronouncement of, a, of promise to humanity, to Abraham, where it's going to be through one line, down to one specific tribe out of all of that, Judah. This is where Messiah is coming from, Judah. The Jews recognize that. That's what they were anticipating. Isn't it interesting as you look at it like that? This is not random. This is not a guy that arrived on the scene and said, I am Messiah, and I'll die for you. No, no, no. this is thousands of years of promise that culminates in this man Jesus, and we'll hear about that next week, this incarnation where all of this comes to bear, not upon a great king riding on a horse initially, but in a baby in swaddling clothes. That seemed that only three astrologers that were not Jewish Really recognized, which is quite weird in itself, isn't it? All right. Then we jump. We'll, 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, Psalm 132. So you'll have to go back and listen to the talk to get these scriptures, or I can type them out. 2 Samuel 7, where God makes covenant with David. It's repeated in 1 Chronicles 17, same story written differently. This covenant with David, we see it in Psalm 132. Where God promises, David, through your line will come the ruler of my people Israel. So now we've gone from humanity to one family out of all the families on the nations of the earth. From that family, one son, one line, going down a few to 12 tribes, choose one tribe. From that tribe, one family, King David, through his line, will come Messiah. 
The Jews understood this. They were expecting that. They were always expecting that the Messiah would come from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, from the family of Abraham. Is that all right? Might be new to us, if not new to Jews. They got it. Matthew 1, 1 opens. First part of the gospel, Matthew written primarily to Jews to speak about Jesus and the kingdom, which we're going to talk about later in another series. It says, Jesus, what does it say? Son of Abraham, son of David. That's how it opens up. He has this man writing the, the good news about Jesus, explaining Jesus to Jews, and he says, I want to anchor it for you. This man, son of David, son of Abraham, man of faith, man of rulership, following the lineage of what has been promised. Ah, oh, said the Jews. And when you deal with Christ, when we deal with the Gentiles, there's a there's a little different understanding of things. They're there to speak a little differently because they didn't have that expectation. Paul has to speak about unknown gods and all sorts of things to anchor them in. But for a Jew they began to proclaim this Jesus as the fulfillment of thousands of years of expectation, anticipation, prophetic, etc. So that's a broad picture of that understanding. Now let's look at just a few. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. In the last ten, they're just points. They're not big. We're not going to unpack each one of them at all. Where we see, now we can look back and they were expecting, and we can see some clear things that link Jesus, whether there's an, an Old Testament prophetic word or, that is repeated in the New Testament about Jesus. Is that all right? So number one, that he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7. This would be the sign. A virgin will give birth. It jumps to Matthew chapter 1. It speaks about the virgin. It actually quotes that text, we'll go through the, quickly go through them. Just read them and then we'll be done. Just so you know, I'm not tricking you. Isaiah 7. This is, and this all comes because King Ahaz is an idiot. Um, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name... Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the prophetic word, way hundreds of years before. Jump to Matthew 1, that verse exactly is quoted in referring to Jesus. In Micah 5.2, it speaks about that this ruler will come from the town of Bethlehem. And in Matthew 2, exact reference again, it speaks about coming from Bethlehem. Do you remember when Herod, the wise men came and Herod asked, where's this king to be born, this king of the Jews? Because they were expecting a king to come. You know, And the wise men recognized it and he asked his own scholars, the religious scholars, the Hebrew scholars, where? And they said, from Bethlehem. Why? Because they believed the prophetic word that had been spoken way back in Micah, that this ruler would come from Bethlehem. 
in Zechariah 9, 9 to 10, there's this picture of the king that would ride into Jerusalem in a triumphant way on a donkey. And then Matthew 21 quotes the exact same text, relying it to Jesus riding in a triumphal entry on a donkey. I'm just giving you a few. Psalm 69 speaks about Jesus where someone's going to betray him. They quote that in Acts chapter 1 when they're talking about Judas betraying and they have to add someone into their midst because he's killed himself. They quote a verse going back to Psalm 69. That his his side would be pierced. They didn't have necessarily a picture of a cross at that stage, but they said his side would be pierced in Zechariah 12. Jump to John chapter 19. They quote that verse. His side was pierced. That Messiah, the anointed one, would suffer. Isaiah 53. And I'm going to read Isaiah 53. And you can look in Romans, Peter, wherever. They, they quote those verses that this Messiah would suffer. Let's read Isaiah 53 because it's so beautiful. Oh, ugly beautiful, if that makes sense. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Remember, we quoted that verse earlier. And like a sheep that before its shear is a silence, so he opened not his mouth. You jump to the story of Jesus, and Jesus just remained silent the whole time. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away as far as, as for his generations who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands, and out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that a beautiful text? I mean, when you look back, you just see Jesus. When they were looking forward, they were getting an inkling of what the anointed one would be like. I don't think they fully grasped what it would actually be. Because if they had, it would have been pretty ugly. But there's this beautiful thing where the, the, the suffering of Messiah is prophesied and we see it come about in the Old Testament. We see that he'll be killed with the wicked. Yet he would be be, he'd also die with the rich. He was, he was killed between two thieves and he was buried in a rich man's plot. 
um, there's pictures of the resurrection in Psalm 16. There's pictures of a, of a return of a conquering king in Daniel chapter 7. And on and on and on and on. All these images of Jesus. Now, you don't have to kiss your Christian brains goodbye. You are someone who follows Jesus, and therefore we have been washed by Jesus. We have been filled with his spirit. We can look back and see these texts. But the reason this is important for us to understand, because if we don't get this, the incarnation makes no sense whatsoever. And we're going to talk about incarnation next week, the birth of Jesus. J.R. Packer, just setting up for you, says that's more mystery than the cross and the resurrection. That God, this triune God, from, from before all time, limits himself into a human body. Without these promises, without these prophetic words, without these images, these long lines of expectation, the incarnation actually makes no sense. But when we understand these stories, when we, not, they are narratives. When you understand these things that God said to his people, that Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, this redeemer, what Kim, whatever word you want to use that is found in the Old Testament. He was coming from the line of humanity, from Abraham, from Judah, from David. They should have got it. He was coming as a human Incarnation. Does it make sense? Let's read the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament, not as this, oh, it's a bunch of fairy tales. But let's read it as this narrative of God being true to what he promised, starting in Genesis chapter 3, and he kept his word. It took thousands of years because people were idiots. But he kept his word. He kept on and he kept on and he kept on and he kept on. And when the time was right, came Jesus. The Old Testament is a story of God's faithfulness to his promise for Messiah, for the anointed one. Is that all right? And so, Father, we ask. In the name of your son, Jesus, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That you would captivate us with this great story of your faithfulness. That you didn't give up on us. Not once did you give up on us. But you saw it through. So that we today could join in with the great cloud of witnesses and celebrate and rejoice and stand in the fullness of what you promised. And we now live with the great anticipation that you are coming back. As many lived with the anticipation of Messiah, we now live with anticipation of your second return when you will come and make all things right, when you will restore the heavens and the earth and sickness and war and crying and divorce and death and squabbling 
and taking offense and all those things will be done with because you will wrap things up according to your plan. So we, learning from those, now live with anticipation and we believe and we can live believing because you have proved yourself to be faithful in this long narrative. Therefore, we keep believing. In Jesus' name.